0: We are seeing thermal generators close. That's great. We've got to stop burning fossil fuels. But we also recognise that we need more electricity. You know, if we're going to electrify most of transportation, uh, we need a lot more electricity. In developed countries like Australia, we've for a long time been essentially had electricity demand fairly flat and we have been essentially decarbonizing by replacing thermal generation with renewables. Okay, what we're now about to see is demand for electricity ramping up. If you add green hydrogen to electrification
1: of industry,
0: or of of our society, uh, it's going to be quite a steep ramp.
1: Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers, and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues.
2: Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm John Federson, founder and chief executive of Aurora. My guest on the show today needs no introduction to a global energy sector audience. He's the 29th prime minister of Australia. In this role, he focused heavily on decarbonization within a challenging political environment. He announced and drove forward the Snowy 2.0 pumped hydro storage project, which is a two gigawatt, 175 hour energy storage project. He oversaw development of the National Energy Guarantee, which was a combined decarbonisation and security of supply policy, uh, but unfortunately didn't quite make it into legislation. And in my mind, this was one of the big sliding door moments in recent Australian decarbonisation policy. Since his prime ministerial career, he's had a big focus on the energy sector, especially around long-duration storage. He is a director of the International Hydropower Association and the chair of Fortescue Future Industries, which focuses, among other things, on green hydrogen. My guest on the show today is Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, welcome, Malcolm. Yeah, John, thank you very much. Uh, great to be with you. Thanks for joining and glad we could find a uh, time when we're both in Australia to record this. It makes, yeah, I know. That's, that's
0: brilliant. And thank you for the very generous introduction.
2: So... Why was long-duration storage such a big focus of your uh, policy as, as Prime Minister?
0: Well, it, look, I've always been very interested in and very committed to the energy transition. You know, for we do have only one planet and we have to make sure we don't wreck it. Uh, so, uh, but I, I, it came into very sharp focus for me in 2016 when they had the big blackout in South Australia. And I know, you know, the whys and wherefores were quite contentious. But one thing was very obvious to me at the time as I dug into it and reflected on it was that we were putting more and more variable renewable energy, wind and solar, particularly wind in South Australia, into the grid. We were taking out continuous thermal generation, shutting down coal-fired power stations, which is a good thing. Uh, But what were we doing in terms of firming? and there had been i think a breezy assumption that there would always be $4 a gigajoule gas and that was okay and we just have you know gas peakers now of course gas peakers are, are you know are, are, you know emissions intensive so we shouldn't kid ourselves about the the profile from that regard but we're also kidding ourselves about the price of gas and so that led me into thinking about what we should do about it i read widely uh, I consulted widely, you know, I spoke to a lot of people, including uh, Andrew Blakers at the ANU, who's done so much fantastic work on pump storage. And so over that summer of six Australian summer of 1617, 17, I uh, concluded that we needed to really go We really needed to make pump storage a, a big priority. And so I gave a speech at the beginning of the year about that and other things and immediately got on to, uh, straight after the speech, on to Snowy Hydro and to Hydro Tasmania, which are our two big hydro schemes. They're they're the only, we have other hydro installations in Australia, as you know, but they're the only two big schemes. And um, Snowy was very, very responsive. Hydro Tasmania was a little reluctant to begin with, but my proposition really was to Snowy, look, I, you know, you can, I can see on, my, my, on on the map that you've got a number of big um, uh, reservoirs at differing elevations. You've got topography around those reservoirs. There's got to be the opportunity for pump storage. The romantic part of the snowy story is that they uh, heard my speech, dived into the old files, found the plans for the Tantangra to Talbingo <laughs> pump storage scheme, which had, la- had first been started being conceptualized in the 1960s. The last time they believe anyone actually cited them, let alone did he work on them, was about 30 years ago, you know, like in the early 90s. Um, and so there it was. And so there were a couple of other options. And that's what we concluded. So it's two very big dams. Um, you know, uh, 700 metres difference in elevation, 20 kilometres apart. And unfortunately, that's quite a lot of mountain to drill through. So mm. that's the, you know, that's the engineering challenge.
2: It is one thing I would say for uh, for state-run utilities. They were good at planning big projects in general.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I
2: well, they I were. I, they were. The and, there.
0: And, and I mean, for Tassie, you know, the big idea there was what's what I you know, called and remain named the Battery of the Nation concept, which is essentially to match Tasmania's, you know, really world's best wind, terrestrial wind assets, with its hydro scheme, add an extra couple of interconnectors to the mainland, and you can deliver firmed renewable power, uh, uh, you know, with without, with using your water in a very, Conservative way because you're just using it as a round trip, as a pump storage scheme mm. to back up your uh, your wind. But the I, yeah. I I I just make this observation though about pump storage generally. Um, Snowy two in particular is a ph- phenomenal, heroic, you know, pick your superlative adjective project, but it is very sui generous. You know, there aren't two big reservoirs like that in that situation anywhere else in Australia. And I mean, what we need, if we're going to do a lot of pump storage, and I passionately believe believe we all need to around the world, they've got to be more like the standard, you know, Turkey's Nest Dam on the ridge above the reservoir, like Crookan in Scotland and, you know, so many others, uh, which are just closed loop, round-trip, fairly straightforward from a construction point of view and you know you may not even have to have much tunneling your pen stock may just run along you know run along yeah. the surface so there's, yeah. a, there's interesting we've, we've basically got to make pump store we've got to get make pump storage as much of a cookie cutter product as we can and unless you think you know and some people do unless you think you know batteries are going to provide the long duration electricity Mm -hmm. storage we
2: need and we'll get get to both of those and in particular what you need to make long duration storage modular because presumably it's less about bureaucrats deciding and more about markets giving the right the right signals but it's it's reflecting on i mean in a sense well before it's time in because i think back to 2016 17 and I think the general view was people weren't thinking about long duration storage. I think the discussion at the time was renewables are cheap, solar costs are coming down massively, wind's already very cheap, uh, renewables are cheaper than uh, fossil fuel generation, and so decarbonization's solved. And of course, that neglects the fact that that might be true for three quarters of the year or 8,000 hours of the year, but that last Eight hundred hours of the year is very hard to decarbonize. and I think if anything characterised the last few years, it's been the world waking up to the idea that um, renewables alone aren't enough, uh, and it also sort of re- reflecting. I well, mean, the, the, the variable renewables aren't enough. It, it, exactly, exactly, yeah. and I often, you know, often on this podcast, reflect on how how crises often throw policy off track interesting that your reflection was that a, that a, a crisis and for those that weren't there the lights went out in South Australia for about a, for about a day uh, yeah. through policy on state, longer than that actually yeah no yeah. it's pretty bad yeah, yeah yeah So the natural question then is we, we need lots of this. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a gap. Uh, we don't know we don't know how to keep the lights on for long periods of time when we don't have variable renewables. Why won't the private sector deliver large volumes of long-duration storage? You mentioned Kruaken, Will Gardner, the CEO of Drax, has been on this podcast before talking about mm. that, that project. Um, you know, we've kind of got accustomed to unsubsidized variable renewables in solar and wind, and, and there may be those out there thinking, well, can't we have unsubsidized long-duration storage? Why, why isn't the market delivering this right now? The market may deliver it, in the future uh,
0: without any subsidy or support. But I think right at the moment, uh, energy-only markets are going to have to have some form of capacity payment, as they do in the UK. Uh, you've written a very gr- great report on that recently, which I'd commend to our listeners. Um, the New South Wales government here in Australia is is working on a, 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 a what they call an ltesa scheme, which is um, which, uh, you know, Aurora, I think, has provided them with some inputs into. But, and it's designed to do the same thing. Now, so, what, so what's the problem? Well, the problem, the problem is that we it inevitably, if you're talking about a battery that is cycling many times a day, that is responding in microseconds, uh, you know, that can buy cheap energy in this five-minute block and, you know, sell it in the next one, um, that's, that, that's great, but, uh, what do we do, uh, you know, when, you know, you have whatever the Australian for dunkel is, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and while, you know, we, we, we have certain, we have a fair degree of resilience because of, we're a big country with, you know, it doesn't, the wind doesn't stop blowing everywhere and the, certainly it isn't cloudy. It doesn't, you know, that's the, the, at least during daylight hours, the sun's shining somewhere. So, but on the and we've got a we've got a big grid. But having said all of that, if you uh, take the point of view that governments and market operators do, uh, that it's a really bad idea to have blackouts, um, and uh, that is a um, you know a, a key performance indicator of any government is keeping the lights on. You are going to need to have that sort of insurance now you know it may be that the you know the economics of eight hours of pumped hydro is nowhere near twice as good as the economics of four hours of pumped hydro because of the additional capex and so that's go- that's where I think you know the system has got to uh, has got to pay for it and you and you now I think yeah. w- w- one of the problems of course is that people aren't used to it bankers project finances aren't used to it so they'll be reluctant. But, I mean, I remember when project financiers, you know, were very wary about financing wind and solar in Australia. The uh, Clean Energy Finance Corporation was providing, you know, government somewhat concessional finance for what nowadays are just absolutely basic bankable, you know, yeah. wind, wind and solar projects.
2: Yeah, that so takes a common. while. Yeah, common yeah. evolution is the sort of standardised market, you know, government yeah. contract, high high credit rating, and then and then people mm-hmm. orient around a sort of way of way of contracting. It's interesting for you to you know you went to capacity payments and and it's I, you know I I find it hard nowadays to find a market, particularly one with reasonable variable renewables penetration, that doesn't have some form of capacity payment in general. I think there are some that pretend they don't. You know, I talk to Texans and they. And they say, no, but actually they have this pretty important scarcity adder in the market that drives value there. How, how does um, that work, John? Basically what they do is instead of what the what the Aussie system might have been a few years ago where they would say um, the lights need to go out before the price gets up to the cap of 15000 what mm. the Texans do is they say, well, We'll send the price up to 15000 9000 in Texas, but it's US dollars. We'll send it up to $9,000, but we'll do it a few gigawatts of surplus capacity on the system. So basically we get the scarcity pricing in there, but we don't have to wait for people to be curtailed Mm. off the system Mm. uh, before, you know, before it happens. And I think it's, frankly, I think it's just a political, well, there's a few things going on, but part of it is a political economy recognition that while Mm. an economist might tell you the optimal amount of lost load is three hours in expectation, the politically Mm. correct answer is Zero. I don't. This is probably a good question for you. If if someone interviewed you when you had your prime minister's hat on and they said, um, "Are we? You know, what's the, what's the optimal level of lost load for insufficient generation capacity?" Oh, yeah. would, you the, would you have given them the art Would you have given them the real answer? Or, or, the, yeah, well, or the well, well, well. I mean,
0: the the real the the real answer <laughs> is, as I said, is zero. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, yeah. you, you, the, the, there isn't a problem with curtailing you know, industries that can cater for it. Right. There isn't a, I mean, you know, that you, you can, you know, demand management or what, you know, Alan Finkel used to call negawatts uh, are a very, is a, is a, you know, very valuable thing to have. If you can, you know, turn the smelter down, you know, for 15 minutes and, you know, to no ill effect, that can be very useful. And, you know, ditto with data centers, if they can switch to their um, alternative power source for a short time. That can mm. be mm. very valuable too. But once you start, you know, switching off, you know, people's air conditioning at home on a hot day and, you know, TV, TV shows. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't, it's because it's, look, it's, it, it's just seen as a key measure of competence. Yeah. You know, I mean the like what one of the I, I was very struck once when I was prime minister to go down to Port Lincoln, which as you 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 might know is a, is you know in South Australia, obviously, it's a big tuna fishing center and tuna breeding center. And so there's huge industry, and they have massive cool rooms, as you can imagine. And their power had that time was so unreliable. You know they were, they were literally running them much of the time off their own generators. You know their power was unreliable and it was too expensive. And they were saying to me, "Look, we do ask ourselves, you know, are we actually living in a first world country here? You know, yeah. this is a bit yeah. crazy. Yeah. You know, we are. Sure, surely, surely we can get reliable, affordable electricity. And you know that was a that's you know that's how that's how people feel. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. it's quite reasonable. And of course. You know, the fact is uh, that, you know, South Australia, which used to have the most expensive and the least reliable energy in Australia, is now simply because of better planning, or as I used to say when I was in politics, running your energy system with engineering and economics, not ideology and idiocy. Uh, By doing that, you know, they've got the most, you know, not every day, but very often the most affordable and reliable electricity in the country. So they've turned yeah. it right around. So, yeah. you know, renewables, renewables at wind and solar are cheaper. Fact. Yes. The problem yes. is yeah. It yeah. doesn't the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine all the time. But, you know, as, 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 as many people have said, we can't live without water, but it doesn't rain every day. We have actually worked out how to store water. Mm. So we just have to plan it and, uh, Then we can have you know we the thing that frustrates me about a lot of the political debate frustrated me when i was in politics and still does um is the suggestion that somehow or other we don't have the tools to do this we do we have all the tools to move to a zero emission energy economy of course you can't do so instantly and you have to plan it and you have to get on with it and you know if you're Germany, deciding to shut down your nuclear power stations isn't a terribly smart thing to do. And of course, the Europeans are now really up against it uh, following Putin's uh, you know brutal invasion of Ukraine uh, with their dependence on Russian gas. But can they get there? Yes, they absolutely can get there. But they've got to decide where they want to go and then put in place the infrastructure to do it.
2: Yeah. And it, to your point of competence, I mean, it is, I, I find it always interesting. And you talk to your, your average Australian, but you also see it in surveys. People will tolerate the lights going out because a tree falls on the line. They're, they're far less patient when, when it comes to lights going out because there wasn't sufficient generation or demand was too high. It's, and, they, you know, it, is, it goes to that, hey, we're in an industrialised economy. Can't, yeah. Can we please keep, keep the lights on in general? We've talked about a bunch of different technologies. Do you have a clear view of how this is going to play out? Now, I, don't, I suppose the, the analogue I think about is is transport, you know, personal transport, where to me it looks like electric vehicles. There's, there's been a tipping point, basically. You see EVs all over the place, all over the world, and maybe not in every vehicle segment. EVs have beaten whatever it is, hydrogen or some other form of transport. Yeah, are you yeah. seeing clear winners now in the long-duration storage space of say eight, eight plus hours? You know, four or eight plus hours. Well, I I
0: think it's very hard to to beat pump storage and eight plus hours uh, storage. You know, a, a electricity storage. In fact, I'm not sure there's any. Uh, you know, that's the the other alternatives are either vastly too expensive or theoretical at this stage I mean you know it's the figure we all throw around it's 95 percent or thereabouts of the world's stored electricity is in pump storage so there's no question that it works it's it's what we could call an oldie but a goodie uh and you know the the plants that you build will be there in a couple of hundred years you know as long as they're maintained so and you can't say that about batteries or or you know most things um so look I I think but 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 having said that Does that mean it'll always be the answer? I don't know. Uh, But honestly, John, you know, I I reckon if we're serious about moving rapidly to a zero emission energy economy, we've got to tick all of the above. You know, there's no point. um, And the one thing we must never do is fall into whatever the, you know, Energy equivalent of vaporware is, you know, where you start saying, oh, we don't have to do anything now because somebody's developing a new gizmo that's just coming around the corner and we'll do nothing and wait till that arrives. We see a bit of that here, with our energy minister Angus Taylor saying, Oh, you know, we're not going to be able to achieve this without technologies that have not yet arrived. I mean, that is just nonsense, absolute rubbish. You know, the we can get there with the tech we've got today. I'm sure there will be new tech and I'm sure the tech we've got will be improved. But the fundamental problem with pump storage is the very simple fact that Moore's law does not apply to digging holes. And so it does take, it takes a lot longer, you know, to, to build a pump hydro system than it does to build a wind farm or a solar farm. And so the pace of variable renewable rollout is rapid. That is putting continuing pressure on the continuous thermal generators, so they're going out of business. But you know, we we need to get cracking on building the pump storage to um, to you know provide the firming. So it's a uh, you know we've got to get on with it. Which is why I push so hard on Snowy, and I'm you know I'm glad it was too far too far progressed for my successors to. Um, you know, to dither about it as they have with Battery of the Nation, but, you know, at least um, Snowy is being built. I mean, they say it's going to be completed on time, but that'd be great. But even if it's, you know, a year late or something like that, uh, you, you, unless you get cracking on these things, you just don't get them built.
2: And so it, it just I, I know you're 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 as I mentioned in the intro, you're focused on green hydrogen as well. Mm, Is yeah. the implication here that you that you see the main applications of green hydrogen outside power generation? And, and well, you, you you don't see that as the sort of long-term long-term role for green hydrogen?
0: You know, I don't entirely agree with Michael Lieberich's, you know, ladder of hydrogen ladder, but I think there's a good insight there that there are some sectors that are very hard to decarbonize. Without green hydrogen, obvious, you know, shipping, um, uh, you know, steel making, um, and, you know, and there are many, there are many others. So there are a lot of things that you're going to need green hydrogen for that you can't do with electricity, and you know, stored electricity alone. Um, so yeah, look, you may we we may find that the EV has trumped the you know hybrid fuel cell. Vehicle for transportation, so probably for light transportation,
1: uh-huh. heavy
0: transportation, trains, you know, perhaps ships, you know, no, I, I wouldn't have thought so. So the, the point is we you know it's it's very hard to predict who's gonna win, but you 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 the demands for for green hydrogen range from gigantic to intergalactically gigantic. You know, I, I just think you know, people arguing about how big how huge is huge is a big yeah. you know is, is I mean we're, and we're so far from having the capacity to do it, which is why I'm glad to be helping uh Andrew Forrest in so far as I can but but I, I i want to make this point though about um the electricity grid though we are seeing thermal generators close that's great we've got to stop burning fossil fuels, but we also recognize that we need more electricity you know if we're going to Uh, electrify most of transportation, uh, we need a lot more electricity in developed countries like Australia. We've for a long time been essentially had electricity demand fairly flat. And you've got a better understanding of that than me as an economist in this area. Uh, But electricity demand has been fairly flat. uh, And we have been essentially decarbonizing by replacing thermal generation with renewables. OK, what we're now about to see is demand for electricity ramping up. And if you, if you add green hydrogen to electrification of the of industry, um, or of, you know, of our society, yeah. uh, it's going Massive. to be quite a steep ramp. So we shouldn't kid ourselves about, you know, the need. And, and, and you know, the, particularly in Australia, the, the renewables can be rolled out very quickly, you know, uh, the wind and solar the big problem's going to be this the storage i think unless we get on with it
2: yeah yeah okay interesting perspective uh, yeah I, I, I mean it's i've not done the maths but uh in the universe of potential applications of green hydrogen it wouldn't surprise me if peaking peaking power was a relatively small one yeah. in in general
0: a, a small but a very important one see this this is this is the point i mean it may not be you know <laughs> it's um you know that the 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 ability to have uh, a clean green peaking fuel is enormously important but that doesn't mean you're going to be using as many molecules for that application as you are for example in making green steel or you know powering the world's mm. you know shipping industry
2: no 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 and, and from a from a net zero perspective i think reassuring that it exists i mean for example, you know, pumped hydro, wonderful, and in certain locations, extremely low cost. Uh, I always ask, once we start to talk about dozens of, meg- of gigawatts in Australia, uh, do we have the sites uh, and, and, and do we have the democratic will, you know, NIMBYs and these types of things to actually develop them all?
0: That is a really good point, uh, but that is why I'm very pleased that I had the privilege of being PM and being able to get snowy too underway. I think it's a great, it'll be a great piece of nation building infrastructure, but it's not typical. And, you know, what we, the problem with dams is that a lot of people say dams, oh my God, you're going to put a dam across a river, you're going to flood all these ecosystems and the fish won't be able to get up the hills, up the river and all of those things. And then you've got to
2: manage them for the fish as well. You can't necessarily optimize around power, those types of things.
0: Yeah, Yeah. All of that stuff. But the the big opportunity, the cookie cutter for for high uh, pumped hydro is is the Turkey's Nest Dam on the hill above the existing reservoir, and there are plenty. Of, there are thousands of sites for that, and there are also even more thousands. And Andy Blaker's work at ANU exposed them, where you can actually build two off river reservoirs. Uh, you know where you build a Turkey's Nest Dam on top of the hill and you find a you know a gully down the bottom of the hill and you uh, build a, a in effect a turkey's nest dam there too and you connect them. Uh, but you know they're, that, that's fine but innocuous but equally uh, a sort of um, a closed loop system and, and the one in the UK that you know I visited when I was up in Scotland uh, at the cop uh, Crookan above Loch or is like a classic you know that's that's a classic case. And you look at that and you say, well, really, I mean, you're not moving water from one one lake to another. You're not moving water from one water, let alone one watershed to another. Uh, mm.
2: It's just... I think it's actually it, it, yeah, a new turbine or something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, what's, you know, how could that be? It, it's hard. its I, I find it hard. I'm sure someone would find an answer. But I find it hard to see how that presents big environmental challenges. Yeah. You know, so so yeah. that's that's what we need. That's what we kind of, kind of need. In my view to normalize we need to make that type of uh pump storage s- stock standard you know okay
2: yes okay and, in and my to, humble to, in my to, humble to, opinion yeah so yeah to conclude by moment, let's just say for whatever political reason that's not feasible it feels like green hydrogen you know, if CCUS doesn't feel particularly proven, lithium ion, oh, the lovely. numbers start to get the, the numbers start to get pretty big once you talk about um, very long duration storage. Uh, you know, my mm-hmm. my yeah. um, my team in the UK said it was about to, to keep the lights on for the worst. Week of the year in a net zero system was about three quarters of a trillion uh, pounds for for lithium ion maybe thirty or forty billion for for peaking plants for fossil fuel peaking plants. So to some extent, now as we think about yeah. you know pr- proven technologies, green hydrogen might play a role in that peaking system, or it's at least nice to have the backstop if if that's the way the world. Well you, see, uh, well, you see, if
0: you look at if you look at, um, yeah, I mean, I and I I agree. I mean, I think that's that's why I say it's all of the above, but. Um, I mean, if you look at, uh, say, Scotland, uh, with a huge amount of wind, uh, limits on the transmission down to the rest of the UK, and, you know, with pumped storage operators like, uh, you, know, our, the, the, you know, the, you know, Drax, being paid to take that load and, you know, pump the water up the hill, which is pretty cool because I then get paid even more when it runs downhill. You, you know, equally, an electrolyzer can be soaking up that uh, surplus generation as well. I think this business of getting off fossil fuels is a, is a big, is, it's such a big existential issue that I think we should throw everything at it.
2: I'd like to zoom out from long duration storage and focus on the energy sector more broadly. Um, first of all, it's the, it's the item of the moment is the, the conflict in Russia and Ukraine, which you mentioned before. How do you, at a, at a big picture level, how do you see this impacting the energy transition globally?
0: Well, clearly, it, it's it has uh, sent up the price of oil, uh, and obviously it's going to threaten, uh, you know, gas supplies to Europe. Now, know we're not sure, you know, will can can Europe afford to stop buying Russian gas? Will the Russians cut off the gas? Uh, it's it is hard to know. This is a shocking, irrational, brutal act of war, and you know you would be rash to forecast any, you know, what the outcomes could be. I mean, it's uh, but I would I'd, look, I mean, let's say the Europeans started buying a lot less gas. Let's say the Russians, you know, the gas pipelines were interrupted. You, you know this again, much better than me. This is your business. But the Russians have got limited capacity to sell that gas to, uh, anywhere else. As far as oil is concerned, it's very fungible. So I think the longer term impact on the oil price will be, uh, you know, less dramatic Um, as long as as long as there are people that are prepared to buy Russian oil, you know, and that China obviously isn't going to doesn't appear to be moved by this. India doesn't appear to be moved by this. So there will be there will be markets for Russian hydrocarbons. Um, I think so. I think the the, that's some thoughts on the immediate consequences. Longer term, this has got to hasten Europe's transition to clean energy. I mean, you you know, they they, they, they cannot, uh, the Europeans cannot uh, remain dependent on Russian gas. It's as simple as that. I mean, the, and that's, you know, why I was saying earlier that I, I thought that the decision to, of uh, Angela Merkel's to phase out German nuclear, uh, civil nuclear um, generation, was such a terrible mistake. I mean, I can understand the politics post-Fukushima, but uh, really, uh, you know, energy dependence on Russia uh, is, is, is clearly a terrible mistake. You know, they're going to need to import more LNG, uh, but they're going to have to get very, very serious about um, alternatives to gas, uh, whether that is green hydrogen, so a cleaner form of gas, uh, or um, or whether it's, uh, you know, peat pumps and other solutions, you know, in terms of uh, winter heating.
2: So I've spent quite a bit of time on German energy policy and in Germany, and as an outsider, politics makes a lot more sense if you understand the German Green Party as, you know, first and foremost an anti-nuclear party rather yeah. than a decarbonisation party. And this is about, I think last time I checked 20% of the vote, someone can correct me on that, mm-hmm. but it... Things start to make sense in that context. I, I think. Would you dare to suggest that it could have an impact on indigenous fossil fuel production or the or the nuclear industry in Europe? Do you think we'll see a renaissance of either of those?
0: Uh, well, again, you'd be a much better judge than me. So I, uh, but uh, I think the look it ultimately, uh, just as it's a a. Uh, Key performance indicator for governments to keep the lights on. It's also a key performance indicator to have people being able to buy affordable energy to keep their homes warm in winter. And uh, so, you know, governments will will do what they have to do in the short term. That may mean some coal-fired power stations are brought back brought back online. But the but these I think these will be temporary measures. There will have to be a very concerted effort to become uh, independent of Russia. That doesn't mean that they'd stop buying, you know, let's say, I mean, it depends how this war ends, right? I mean, this war may end with Putin being overthrown. Uh, I think that's uh, a member Tom Friedman had a piece in the New York times recently. as the least likely of three outcomes. I personally, I think it's one of the, I think it's very likely we're dealing with, actors that are not with act were well, one actor in particular that is not really rational i mean i've dealt with putin um in years past and a lot of people who've dealt with him have, would make the same observation that he always appeared to be very calculating and clear-eyed and rational um or so that is to say reasoned but um the his ranting about ukraine and you know and and the the manner he's conducted this war, the lies that have been told, the sort of the sort of you know, the just this kind of assumption that the Ukraine government was going to fold up like a pack of cards in a few days—all of that does not speak to that. Doesn't seem to be the product of a calculating, careful mind to me. So something's at, at a miss in the Kremlin, I think.
2: Just following up on the Ukraine rolling up, does. Does Ukraine's resistance give you more confidence in Western resolve to, to to stand its ground to defend its values than you had before this?
0: I think we are all in awe at the courage of the Ukrainians uh, and the and the leadership that Zelensky, President Zelensky, has shown. Uh, you know, it's, look, it's it is. That they they have def- they they've they've not just defied Putin, they have confounded the expectations, you know, the grim expectations of many others. Um, the you know the West is obviously walking a fine line, trying to provide the the means, the you know the physical can you know uh, uh, armament means for uh, Ukraine to defend itself, but without triggering a European war. Uh, but the you know I, I and i i know you know putin has obviously sort of threatened uh nuclear war but uh, that's most people most observers believe he hasn't lost the plot to the extent that he'd actually embark on that which would just be a suicide mission and regrettably he'd take a lot of other people with him uh, uh, including many in the west it's a very tough period um, what's likely to emerge is a, you'd have to say at best for Putin is a quagmire, yeah. you know, yeah. and, yeah. and, and they, you know, they, whether it's, you know, the Russians in Afghanistan or the Americans in Vietnam, you know, that is not, that's not a place to be. Yes. I think NATO has been supportive. The West has been supportive. So as Australia and it's, you know, way limited by our geography, But really, the 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 heroes of the hour
2: are the Ukrainians. So, from one quagmire to another quagmire, um, do you think energy sector policy is more difficult in Australia than elsewhere?
0: Uh, Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's it's it's. I mean, the only place I'm familiar with that where it's comparably difficult is the United States, and. Essentially, the problem here has been, as it has in America, but I'll just talk about Australia, it has been a the way in which um, energy policy and in, and really climate policy was turned into an ideological or identity issue. And that really was done with full force by Tony Abbott, who used that to sort of overthrow me. Me as leader of the Liberal Party, I've lost the Liberal leadership twice, both as opposition leader and prime minister. Something of a, an accomplishment, you might think.
2: Um, and and arguing both over decarbonization policy. Oh,
0: totally. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, yes. And and so Abbott, because if you if you go back in history, in 2006 7 when John Howard was still prime minister and I was the environment minister, Howard's policy was to have an emissions trading scheme. That was he went to the 07 election with an ETS as his. That was the
2: Shergold review, I think. Was was that the yeah, one? Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. It emerged from the Shergold review, and um, anyway, Rudd won the election. Rudd took over the policy. It was also Labor's policy. The same team led by Martin Parkinson that had been designing the ETS under Howard continued to design it under Rudd. And you know, while Kevin was always keen to put his own label on it, and it was absolutely. The ETS, you know, had two prime ministerial parents, John Howard at the conception and John and uh, Kevin Rudd. And I was supporting it because I'd taken the view as opposition leader by this stage that, you know, the Liberal Party had not changed its policy. We'd gone into opposition, but we maintained our policy. But there was this sort of drumbeat from the right uh, with Abbott uh, the Murdoch media, which plays an outsized role in our politics here and has been a consistent voice against climate action. Um, you know, that's another several books to write, of, or, you know, have been written, many books have been written about that. But, look, you know, that's like Fox News in the United States. Look at the damage that's done to uh, climate action over many years. Anyway, you had those two uh, populist right-wing politics right-wing media, mostly Murdoch's, and, of course, the fossil fuel sector. And they basically resulted in the issue becoming really weaponized. and so began what has been called the climate wars. And they still continue to the point that Australia was under Morrison, my successor, was the only developed country that didn't take an increase in its 2030 target to the Glasgow COP. Um you know, we, uh, we've got the same target that we had in 2015 at uh, the Paris COP. Uh, the uh, Australian Pavilion in Glasgow, as I'm sure some of uh, your listeners will recall, featured as its principal exhibit, uh, an example, uh, theoretical, I might add, of carbon capture and storage by a gas company called Santos. I mean, now, what sort of mentality would have you highlighting a gas company at a climate conference, I don't know. Seems pretty, pretty wild, but it just shows you how out of step uh, government has been here. Now, the good news is that in Australia, uh, as a federation, the state and territory governments are much more progressive. particularly you know, including the liberal ones. I mean, Matt Keen, who's the liberal energy minister um, and treasurer now in New South Wales, is really forging ahead with a pump storage agenda and. You know, a lot of other uh, energy transition measures, as are his other state counterparts. And, of course, business in Australia is get, getting on with it. You know, whether it's the banks or Andrew Forrest with green hydrogen, Mike Cannon Brooks trying to take over AGL. You know, it's uh, so that the this is why when Origin decided to close one of its huge uh, coal-fired power stations, uh, early, earlier, bringing it forward uh, from the 2030s to 2025, uh, didn't even bother talking to the federal energy minister. Taylor has become irrelevant. And um, really, the, the states are taking the lead. I never thought mm-hmm. I'd say this as a former member of the national parliament, but uh, three cheers for federation. Thank heavens the states can pick up the slack when the federal government, uh, you know... Um, Drop abandons its responsibilities
2: yeah and and it's interesting right to me at least it feels like when the neg didn't get up that was the invitation for the states to play a role you know there was a vacuum created. Know, well the
0: neg had two parts the first part was the reliability part of it so it was an obligation on retailers to buy energy from you know generators that had a reliability measure and a A emissions intensity measure, which was to decline in accordance with our international commitments. And it was the, naturally, it was the emissions intensity thing that the right blew up over. And so, you know, I I guess you could say half the NEG survived, but the bit that was really important from a climate point of view did not. So the federal government has no climate mechanism at all in the electricity market. All of the policy that affects emissions in the electricity market is being driven by states in practical terms now yeah and of course and no, I, the market I, John you know I mean the as we were saying earlier I mean the the you know cheaper and cheaper variable variable renewable energy is is um, sending the coal-fired generators broke
2: exactly a lot of a lot of cheap cheap solar. And I should add you know, Aurora did modeling underpinning, as you mentioned that you very kindly mentioned <coughs> the New South Wales, um, scheme and also the recent Victorian offshore wind scheme, which is sort of a centerpiece there. So, um, can attest to the fact that the States are pushing forward some of the major decarbonization policies in Australia <coughs> uh, with Aurora's support. Is there, so you talked about the forces pushing decarbonization in Australia. Um, is there something about us Australians being, you know, coal exporters? A lot of regional jobs being dependent on fossil fuel industries that makes it hard, as well. You know, the way you position it, it was a, it was a, you know, the the politics and the personalities. Is there something fundamental about you know major major coal exporters? You know, Kevin Rudd, for example, had a a mining resources rent tax battle. Uh, I think you know towards the start of his first prime ministership. And it was a problem, you know. It was. A le- I suspect one of the lessons he took away was, you know, don't take on the big miners in Australia. Yeah. it, it he, wasn't
0: a very, it wasn't a very good tax. I don't think it, or indeed its replacement, well, its replacement raised no money, and I don't think that Kevin's original conception was actually well designed.
2: Does the punchline remain though? There's something hard about. Oh yeah, taking sure. on... sure you know australia, in the uk you can take on coal generation because there's no coal you know that that got rid of coal mining a long yeah, time ago totally. no, no there's there's not a there's not a sort of big dog to, to attack you if you take that on whereas in australia i think that,
0: that yeah. you're absolutely right it is a, there is a very it, the the resources sector is very powerful and very political
2: so malcolm i'd like to conclude by asking you about a few concepts in the energy transition uh, to ask you if you think they're overrated or underrated as concepts. Yep. Okay. Uh, so let me start with the first one. The role of electricity as opposed to molecules like hydrogen in a net zero economy, is it overrated or underrated? Uh,
0: I think it's about right. I think, it's, I, I think, it's, I, I think if anything, it's probably uh, slightly underrated, but time will tell. Okay. Uh,
2: the second one, uh, humanity's ability to hit net zero emissions by 2050. Underrated. Uh, And finally, the importance of technological progress in reaching net zero emissions globally. Uh, Is it overrated or underrated?
0: I think it's overrated uh, in the sense that we can get there with the tech that we have. But having said that, I would never, you know, history tells you that we generally tend to underestimate the significance of technological progress. So I'm sorry I'm having a bit of a bet both ways, but You know, what a lot of people use, you know, the technology, future technology as a kind of vaporware to get to justify doing
2: less now. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting take on it. That's a good note to finish on, Malcolm. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to talk through Australia's somewhat perplexing energy politics for our global audience. Malcolm Turnbull, thanks so much for taking the time to speak.
0: Thanks, John. Great to be with you.
1: That was John Feddersen, founder and chief executive of Aurora, speaking to Malcolm Turnbull, the 29th Prime Minister of Australia. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.